Longtime listeners of College Admissions Insider might remember one of our early episodes on applying test optional, which began with a little quiz that went like this. Our standardized tests, A, one element of many that colleges consider when looking at your application, B, an opportunity to set yourself apart from the other applicants, C, four hours on a Saturday morning that shouldn't define your future, or D, all of the above. And just like it was then, the answer is still D, all of the above. While standardized tests are a means of demonstrating your academic readiness for college, they're just one data point of many that college admissions committees consider. They can be a fairly important data point, though, for students applying to colleges that require students to submit these test scores as part of their application. I'm Brooke Thames from Bucknell University, and on this episode of College Admissions Insider, we're providing some helpful info for students who will be taking tests like the SAT, ACT, and AP subject tests as part of their college admissions journey. I'm Becca Haupt-Aldridge, also from Bucknell. Today, we'll talk about the merits and weaknesses of standardized tests, how to decide which tests to take, tips for studying, and more. And joining us once again is Associate Director of Admissions, Ben Cavanaugh. He's a familiar voice here on our podcast. You might recognize him from episodes like applying to college as a homeschooled student and making the most of a counselor visit. Welcome back, Ben. Thank you. Thanks for having me. There's a lot of questions, opinions, and quite a bit of research surrounding standardized testing. So let's start by chatting quickly about why tests like the SAT and ACT exist in the first place. What do they tell colleges and universities about their applicant pool? Well, you know, I think the key word in, in is standardized. You know, it is it is something that you can give quickly, cheaply, efficiently to a wide range of students in a wide range of places all over the world. And when evaluating applicants, it's it's a common measure. The test in and of itself is pretty much the same if we're talking the SAT or the ACT, whether you take it in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, or Huntsville, Alabama, or anywhere else that you might want to take the test. So it's the standardized element, you know, it's a means of sort of saying, okay, at least these students have this one thing in common that we can sort of compare them against. And when trying to figure out what scores students need to score on these standardized tests, students can often find a college or university's desired test scores, or at least the average scores of admitted students on the website, or maybe in printed admissions materials. But are the scores a school is looking for arbitrarily chosen, or is there some math going on there behind the scenes? Well, I mean, the College Board and the ACT both list out sort of percentiles. So certain scores may say, well, you know, if you're above and a fourteen hundred just to pluck it out. That's probably putting you ninety fifth percentile and above. So that's that's probably one consideration. You know, if someone says, "Well, we're or top institution, we want to enroll top students." Well, you probably want to have uh, testing that's that's in a very high percentile. I think also a lot depends on you know if, if institutions are looking to if they're looking, for example, at, at various scoreboards, various rankings, various you know third party groups, sort of ranking institutions, then certainly test scores are one of those measures that is often considered. So they may be looking at, all right, let's let's look at admissions in terms of what's going to push our average and middle 50% in terms of testing higher. And also a lot of institutions are, you know, probably have similar strategies when it comes to using testing in terms of awarding merit awards. But yeah, I think I think it's one of those things that, you know, different institutions are going to look at testing differently. And then some of them are actually going to say, you know, probably more on the low end that below certain scores, certain thresholds, do students actually have the academic tools to be able to be successful 
in college. So I, I think you know, there's definitely value at the low end, arguably more so maybe than at the high end. And so far, we've mentioned two major standardized tests that students might take, the ACT and the SAT. Ben, can you tell us about the difference between the two? Well, I'm afraid, you know, they've, they've become more similar in recent years. I mean, originally, the SAT was the scholastic aptitude test. It was really meant to try to discover innate intelligence. It was really, you know, it was trying to, to find sort of hidden talent. One of the early uses of the SAT was by Harvard University as a for a scholarship competition, you know, trying to standardize the various institutions' entrance exams. So they were trying to use the SAT to find hidden talent, to find students that weren't typically on the radar. The ACT emerges as a competitor post-World War II as a much more curriculum-based test. It's like, well, we're not measuring aptitude. We're measuring what the students have actually learned or what they've retained, what they know. So the sections are different. I would I would say in recent years, you know, the way the SAT is sort of, it's no longer technically stands for it. The initials no longer technically stand for anything. So it's moved away, I think, from its aptitude roots and, and become much more similar to what the ACT measures in terms of trying to determine how much curriculum students have, have effectively learned. And so when we're looking at the actual structure of the SAT versus the ACT, do we see differences? Are there differences in the subjects or even the time that it takes to complete the tests? Yeah, I mean, both of those tests are, are marathons. You're talking, you know, four plus hours typically on a Saturday, unless there's some sort of religious exemption or some sort of students can get a, a waiver if there's if there's learning difference issues in terms of getting a, an extended or no time test. But, you know, the, the SAT, you've got traditionally, you know, it's gone through many names, but critical reading, there's a math section. They've gone back and forth with a writing section, which has now kind of been reincorporated. The ACT has always been much more, and again, the, the, the names have changed. There's, there's sort of been a math section, a science section. It used to be more of a social studies, now it's more of a reasoning section, though it still has heavily social studies. And then, of course, an English section. So the ACT has much more been distributed on four measures high score out of 36, and you sort of average those four to get to the 36. The SAT has gone, it was out of 1,600, then for a few years out of 2,400, now it's gone back to being out of 1,600. So, Yeah, it sounds like there's been some evolution in these tests. You mentioned the SAT going from looking for you know special talents to really testing what students have learned and even the, the differences in what the, the testing scores were. And so since the SAT and ACT are, you know, pretty much now on an even keel, do colleges prefer one test over the other or evaluate applicants differently based on the test that they took? No, I mean, there's pretty well-established concordance scales. Of course, those change because every so often the SAT, more so than the ACT, I think, have recentered their tests. So the scales have sort of adjusted accordingly. But there's no preference between the two. And it's not unusual to see not only students taking both tests, but taking tests several times. And so it sounds like a lot of students are choosing to potentially sit for both the SAT and the ACT. And if a student's trying to decide which one they should take, sometimes I wonder if there's any guidance around what test might be better suited for what type of student. I know in my experience, I remember taking both the ACT and the SAT and then becoming frustrated when I scored nearly the exact same score on each one. So I remember Googling some kind of comparison chart and being like, well, I, I scored the same number on both exams. But I know um, for some students, they find that they prefer one test over the other. 
For example, the ACT includes a science reasoning section and an optional essay portion that would actually make the exam take a little bit longer than the SAT. And the SAT actually has fewer reading passages than the ACT does. In the math sections, I know that the ACT includes probability and statistics questions when the SAT does not. And so while these changes might seem fairly minor between the two exams, some students might find that they have a preference for one versus the other. Brooke, what do you remember about your own testing experience, you know, assuming that you took one or the other or both? And how did you prepare for these big tests? Yeah, Becca, I actually ended up taking the SAT, but I know that test prep resources for either test really span the gamut from private tutors to free study resources online. I ended up enrolling in an SAT prep course that not only helped us study for each individual section of the test, but also gave us some great strategies for working through test problems and questions. I also picked up a couple of SAT prep books that I could use to study on my own, but there are tons of options in between. Some high schools offer resources to help students study through in-class instruction or test prep sessions. There may be community organizations or local libraries that offer classes or test prep books that students can borrow. There are even tons of apps out there that can help you study right from your phone or your tablet. So the options really are endless, and it just comes down to what a student and their family feels is best for them. Something I didn't know at the time that I was curious about was, you know, after I've taken my tests and gotten my test scores back and sent them to the universities that I was applying to, what was it exactly that the admissions counselors were looking at? So Ben, as someone who reads applications every year, what exactly are you actually seeing when it comes to test scores? Is it really just a series of numbers or is there any other information that tells you how well a student did on these tests? You know, that's the thing. We, I can't recall an instance or very many instances where I've actually dug into the file to look at subscores. I mean, we're usually looking at kind of overall scores. You know, you might notice ranges on ACTs if someone had a particularly high or low subsection, but you know, I usually just kind of take the scores as they are, just sort of the overall the overall section scores. And, you know, it's one of those things you kind of note, no, they took the test. Okay, that's how they scored. And, oh, they didn't take the test. Okay, well, there's other things to look at. So, I mean, it's, I don't recall thinking <laughs> or spending a lot of time on testing when looking at an applicant. It's just, it's one data point of many. And the SAT and the ACT aren't the only tests that a student can take to demonstrate their knowledge. There are also AP and IB subject exams, which can actually earn a student college credit if they score within a university's required range, usually a three or above um, on a scale of one to five. Then these tests are also standardized tests, right? Yeah, but they're very different. I mean, you know, AP is, again, a function, advanced placements of function of the college board. So the, the, the argument was, well, this will give you advanced standing in college if you take and pass this class, you'll get credit and get credit for passing this course in college. So those are much more course specific, whereas the IB, the diploma program especially, is, 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 is meant to be taken together as a suite. You don't take one IB course. You take typically three, in some cases, four higher levels and take three standard levels and then have a, a theory of knowledge. And there's usually a, a paper as well. So, so they're very different design. One is much more pointillist, for lack of a better word. <laughs> the other is much more symphonic 
if I were to combine them. But yeah, I think, and again, the challenges are, you know, when you're taking an AP class, the, the, the teacher has to have their, you can't just call any class an AP. That's really something the college board has cracked down on. So the, the teacher has to submit their syllabus to the college board and get it approved. So that's it's in line with kind of what the course should cover. But you're also you're trying to prepare students for a test that they're not writing. So part of it is so sort of that anticipation of of what's going to be covered. There's usually short answers, there's, you know, especially in the humanities, the document-based questions, which I always loved. Whereas IB is, is you actually don't know the score until the end. We, there's, we read transcripts and we'll see predicted scores, which may or may not turn out to be accurate. But it's different because IB International Baccalaureate is, is global. So the reach is global. And, and I think the language and, and, and sort of the mindset is more global. So you know, they, they come out of two very different places, even though students can earn college credit for either one. You mentioned earlier the fact that students can be really focused on getting the highest score that they possibly can on any of these tests, SAT, ACT, or AP subject tests. And so when it comes to AP and IB courses, sometimes you'll see students, I'm sure, who pack their schedules full of these courses so they appear academically impressive in their college applications. But is that what high schoolers should be thinking about when considering whether or not to even take AP or IB course or test? No, I think that's very much true. It's one of the surprising elements of recent years is how many students have added AP calculus, even if they have no intent to pursue anything STEM-related. There's a perception that it just needs to be on the transcript to show that there's enough rigor there. But I also think, again, it's like, what can the student handle and still you know, be able to have other extracurricular activities, being able to eat and sleep? And eating and sleeping seems to be what's gone out the window for a lot of students. So you want to see students challenging themselves. You want to see students who, who are prepared for you know, the challenges of college work. But at the same time, you know, I think just taking APs just to take doesn't make a lot of sense. Places like Bucknell, you know, typical student course load to be four classes a semester, one class equal to four semester hours. So when I see students taking five AP classes, I think I always think they're taking a schedule that's harder than what they take in college. <laughs> they're actually more more engaged. No wonder they're not sleeping because they're they're going above and beyond. So it's a balance between challenging yourself, being prepared for college, but also what can the student handle or what should, what should the student be, be handling? So, And that's an individual decision. And Ben, I'm glad you brought up the mental health and the eating and sleeping, right? That's kind of part of what we do in holistic admissions. We need to make sure a student's academically viable, but how are they going to contribute to the community? And if they're not taking care of themselves and balancing their academics, how are they going to be able to do that at the high school level or at the college level? So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Well, you know, I, I think it's it's something that students, you know, there's so much pressure, both perceived and real, about being admitted to, you know, the most competitive selective institutions and not enough thought as to, well, what do I want out of that? Like, okay, so I get into X school, then what? Like, what do I want out of the experience? So I think the Brooks earlier point, coursework should be taken in preparation of something. What I think is, what I think what we've lost, it's almost impossible for a high school student to take something just to take it, just for fun, right? That's that's kind of gone out the window. You almost have to wait for college for that, you know, that that sort of elective that 
like if someone were at an institution that had a history of hip hop class, I would take that. I'm not even a big hip hop guy, but I would take that class because it'd be interesting to see. But I would then, as a student, be concerned about the perceived rigor of the class that people might be thinking, well, that's not as challenging as taking AP World History, although it may actually be a more not only useful, but interesting class. So, you know, you always have to think, what, what are we, you know, what are we gaining, but also what's the trade-off? What, what are we losing in terms of not being able to follow? Because we speak so much here about students following their interests and following their goals. And in many cases, this is kind of the first time once they get to college that they're really able to do that and still feel like, you know, they're moving towards a, a larger goal. Yeah, and I have to imagine that's hard for a student to juggle too, as they're looking at a course catalog. And there's, I'm sure, classes that pique their curiosity, but then there's also the classes that they believe that they should be taking in order to be on that college preparatory track. You know, I've also heard, of course, the theory that standardized tests don't necessarily measure how good you are at being a student, they measure how good you are at taking a test. And as someone who reviews applications at Bucknell every year, would you rather see a high test score with a lower overall grade in the course? Or would you rather see a high grade in the class and potentially an average or kind of middle of the road test score? Let's be honest. You know, if, you, if you're comparing the two, you're, you're really looking at students that's, that are kind of on the periphery of the pool. And you're looking at students that you're kind of thinking, well, this is a bit of a risk here. Having said that, I would almost overwhelmingly go towards the student with the higher, the higher grades and, and may add higher strength schedule and lower testing than the student with the higher testing and the lower the lower grades. So yeah, I think grades are an indication of consistency of performance. They're an indication of or a better indication of, oh, that does this student know how to study? Does this student correct mistakes? Or are they uh, you know, how are they evolving as learners versus, okay, you showed up one day on a Saturday to take a test. Yeah, like we mentioned at the top, it's really just you know, a couple of hours, you know, one day in the whole life of a student and so many things can be wrapped up in that. And so, yeah, your score might not be indicative of how good you are of a student or a test taker really at all. So as we come to the end of our time here, let's take a step back and talk about something that you've been talking about this whole time, Ben, which is the trend in higher education towards test optional. Bucknell has been test optional since 2019 and is one of the many schools that are no longer requiring students to submit test scores. So why are we seeing this gradual release of testing as an academic metric? Well, you know, you have to go back. I think it was Bowdoin in the 70s were one of the debates as well, some of those, those wonderful main liberal arts. It was, it was a lot of liberal arts colleges at first that sort of pushed back on this idea that I think to... Becca's earlier question, is the test measuring anything except the student's ability to take tests? Because it's not measuring, for example, creativity. And so many students, I think, read the questions on these tests and come up with answers that they could probably argue are actually more correct than the one that's the official right answer. So the test isn't, these tests aren't really necessarily great at discovering people with maybe an artistic or visionary mindset who just look at the world differently. And of course, these are the kinds of people that tend to create things that we celebrate long after all of us are are gone. So I think many institutions, when they started looking at the data, they started looking at the students and various, you know, sort of testing, various, you know, sort of plot points, really discovering, you know, it didn't have a lot of, the testing in and of itself, if you removed socioeconomic status and, and you removed a lot of factors that had to do with with wealth 
it didn't have a lot of predictive value. It really didn't. And it really, I think a lot of institutions started to feel like, you know, the testing was really a barrier in terms of enrolling the kinds of students and the kinds of classes that they thought would thrive at their institution. And, and too often, a measure to incentivize the enrollment of students who maybe weren't the best fits for your institution just because to, you know, they, they had a great testing on a, on a Saturday. So, you know, I think as students, you know, again, so institutions going test optional was not based on a whim. It was not based on some kind of sales thing. It was, I think it was based on just kind of general philosophical disagreements with what the testing represented and what their institutions represented. And by removing what for many students is a barrier to entry, They've seen, and in our cases, we've seen much more, not just much more diverse classes, but I think a different kind of student that potentially would thrive here that, that perhaps because being so focused on testing in the past, we, we were missing on. And I think other institutions have had similar, similar thoughts and, and similar discoveries. So Ben, as we close our time together, if there's one question you think a student should ask themselves when considering their options about testing, what would that be? Well, do I want to put up with it? Like how badly the institutions that require it, how badly do I want to go there? If, if I'm someone who genuinely feels test anxiety or feels like the testing doesn't reflect my ability, then the amount of time that one would have to perhaps study or train, really, it, it really is a form of training to, to get a qualifying score. I think one has to wonder, is this worth it? Are these institutions really valuing the kind of person that I am? Do I feel like I need to change who I am as a person in order to match the entrance requirements of this institution? Or should I try to find an institution that welcomed me as a student because I bring other talents that aren't necessarily reflected in test score? So I think what testing has become is it's become, again, because it's standardized, it becomes this simple measure for beings, for creatures who <laughs> were not simple. We're not we're not one dimensional, right? And I think we we give we give ourselves too little credit when we reduce ourselves to what our test score was. Well, thanks, Ben, for joining us and giving us so much to think about when it comes to testing. I'm sure it's going to be of really great value to the students and families who tune into our podcast. Well, thanks, Rob. I, mean, I hope I I've provided some 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 things to think about. And thanks to everyone out there listening. If you're a fan of the podcast, please take a moment to rate, subscribe, and share this episode with the high schoolers in your life. We will be back with another episode in just two weeks. In the meantime, send your questions, comments, and episode ideas to podcast at bucknell.edu. We read every note you send. And finally, you're invited to follow Bucknell on your favorite social media apps. Just look for at BucknellU on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. You can also follow our student-run Instagram account, which is at I am Ray Bucknell. Until next time, keep on reaching for your dreams and your dream school.